God, we pray that our lives would proclaim this, that the ways that we speak and the ways that we love our families, our friends, our coworkers, that they would proclaim that, that Jesus is our vision, that he is our Lord, that there's nothing better than him. I thank you that you've given us such clear picture of your love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that he would be exalted in our hearts and in all that goes on this morning as we continue to worship. It's in the name of Jesus that we have the privilege of praying and knowing that you hear us. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Chris Pope. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Community Church, and I'm going to be ushering in our prayer time this morning. Um, did get some news this morning. I need David to kind of fill me in exactly where, but for those of you that may not know, and probably no, nobody knows at this point, um, Lee Williford emailed this morning that Evelyn had to be rushed to the hospital. I'm not sure which. Okay. Um, she's at the ER. She's got re- breathing difficulties, and it's been going on, I guess, since last night, so they're a little worried, and we need to be lifting Evelyn up in our prayers this morning as well as those in our prayer focus. If you got a bulletin this morning, if you flip it open to the inside, you'll see at the bottom of the inside page our prayer requests. That is by no means all-inclusive. We have those within our body that have unspoken requests, and via home group, you may or may not be aware of some of the spoken and unspoken, but we lit these up specifically, and we're adding Evelyn to that this morning. Um, I'm up here specifically because every month we have a missions focus. This morning we have the Becks. And I'm not sure whether or not, I don't believe we have a slide this morning, so I don't get to show you what they look like. But they are missionaries that this church supports. They're world missions that work primarily with Eastern Bloc countries. So they work with Croatia, Albania, Slovenia, Hungary. And there are some countries they actually work with that are security sensitive. And so we're lifting them up in our prayers this morning. They work with trying to equip teachers in those areas to teach the word and the gospel. And so for some countries, it's a lot easier to broach the subject than in others. But we know as um, essentially as terrorism starts to creep into all society and all parts of the world, they're seeing more and more where it's harder and harder to share the gospel. And it kind of reminds me of um, a lot of things you'll hear in society today. A lot of things actually you'll read from Daniel uh, when the three were thrown into the fiery furnace. They weren't really necessarily delivered from the fire. They were delivered in the fire. And I'm sure that all of us would like to pray for ease and comfort and that all of our, all of our issues and our problems would go away. And God knows those concerns. He knows our heart. He knows our minds, which is a scary thing. But he's also in control, and he is sovereign. So we lift them up this morning. Now, the Becks are located actually in Xenia, Ohio, and they do go back out remotely, but they're primarily located here in the States and work with those teachers in those countries. So we're going to be lifting them up. And Heavenly Father, as, as we see in Hebrews, where it was a very dangerous time to follow you, our world increasingly is becoming more and more dangerous for us to proclaim your word. We ask that you cover us with your grace. We thank you for giving us your spirit to live within us. We thank you for the power to speak boldly when you'd have us speak that. Dear Heavenly Father, we lift these things up. We lift our missionaries up. We lift those who will go out and proclaim your word. We lift up 
those who will proclaim your word here in our family this morning. Through every ministry, help us to glorify you. Even this morning as we see the blue sky and the sunshine, your creations proclaiming you too. Please forgive us for our sins. Help us to be bold in our actions, bold in our statements. Help us to love you with our whole hearts. And as we turn our hearts toward giving this morning, help us to recognize all good gifts are from you. Nothing we have belongs to us. And at some point in time, everything we have will either perish or belong to another. Help us to be willing to share generously, to give, as your word says, hilariously, not in a frivolent way, but in an intentional way. We thank you for loving us and for giving us those good gifts. Help us to love one another with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome yet again to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder here at Grace, and we are jumping back into our series of Hebrews. We are minus a bunch of youth who are in the mountains uh, wrapping up a ski weekend at TVR, uh, Christian Camp. Uh, if you go online to the Facebook page of the Grace Youth, Grace Students, you will get to see some of the pictures of their time up there this weekend. We're just praying, trusting and praying that God has uh, done a work in their hearts and that He will continue to do a work in His heart. And speaking of continuing a work in our hearts, the lines we were just singing, make my heart believe that Jesus is better than this, Jesus is better than that. That is preaching the gospel to yourself every day. That's the kind of thing when we're talking about make sure to preach the gospel first to yourself every day. The gospel is so much broader than the plan of salvation. We need to understand that Jesus is the center of all of history. He's the center of all the universe. He's the center of our salvation. He's the center of everything. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in uh, her book, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, every page of scripture whispers the name of Jesus. So our focus this morning is, not surprisingly, Jesus. Uh, I want to ask you a question. Who is your best friend? That's a good answer. If you, let's, let's leave that aside for just a moment. Who is your best friend? I, I'm going to guess that if you are married, you're going to say your spouse. You had better say your spouse. If you're engaged, you really better say your fiance if you wish to stay engaged. That is your best friend. But even outside of that, who is your best friend? And why is that person your best friend? Now, if you're like me, it's really kind of hard to narrow it down to one person. I, it's kind of like I've got one best friend in these circumstances, one best friend in these circumstances, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe you're one of those who say everyone is your friend. And surely you know those that a number of people would say, this person is my best friend. Now, it's impossible for him or her to be best friends with 20 people, but everybody thinks of that person in that way. He or she is my best friend. And when multiple people feel very close to one person, and truly close, I'm not talking about someone who can do something for a lot of people, but 
But when people feel close to one person, generally it's because that person makes everyone around him or her a better person. It's one of the most important qualities I encourage single men and women to look for when they're considering getting married. To look for in a potential spouse is someone who will make you a better person. That's a good standard for all of your close friends. Well, this morning, our study of Hebrews points us to the perfect friend and the right answer. Always the right answer, it seems, Jesus. And I know you could say that about a number of New Testament passages, but Hebrews 5, 1 to 10, our text this morning, is connected with the larger argument of Hebrews that Jesus is superior to angels, he's superior to the Mosaic law, he's superior to Moses himself, to the earthly sacrificial system, to any security or pleasure that the world has to offer. Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. Hebrews 5 especially connected with the text where we left off in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, which Lee Williford preached for us and is now at the hospital this morning, continuing to pray for Evelyn. But Hebrews 5, connected with those verses just before Hebrews 5, 5 points us to Jesus, who is the perfect friend. So if you're new to grace or You've been here for the last two or three weeks. There's a good chance that you've already checked us out online. Or maybe you have discerned in what's being said that we are in a series in the book of Hebrews. I should tell you that you're jumping into deep waters. But that's okay. You can stay close to the edge until you feel comfortable. And you'll be able to push off soon and and swim. I would encourage you to go back and if you're serious about it, you think this may be the place where God is calling you. And you want to want to... Be totally up to speed. Go back to the, to the website and uh, all of them have, uh, all, all of the sessions in the book of Hebrews has the audio. And I think most of them have a print, uh, a copy, an uh, uh, electronic copy as well, a print copy that you can download and, and read in your own leisure to, keep, uh, to catch up. Um, <clears throat> it's our custom on Sunday mornings to stand as we read the text that is the basis of the sermon. And just after we read the text this morning and there's prayer, then we're going to have a brief overview of the book of Hebrews, not only to catch up, but also to sort of set the stage for where we are going. So if you would, please stand and we're going to read together Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. When I say we're going to read together, that means I'm going to read it and you read along with the text on the screen or in your Bible. For every, and by the way, four, look at that. Every time, you, you can't read a section of Hebrews without a connecting word. It's for, therefore, so, now. It's always connecting back. It's one long argument. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest 
but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There's that word today. It's all through Hebrews. Most of the time quoting Old Testament passages, but the emphasis is whatever you're doing with Jesus, do it today, now. Today, God says, I have begotten you. That's a little different focus on the today, but that word is there over and over. Today I have begotten you, as he also, or as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, we ask for your guidance as we look into uh, this, your word And we acknowledge that the book of Hebrews is not an easy book. We also acknowledge that it is in many ways a key to understanding all of Scripture. We know how Scripture works when we come to the book of Hebrews. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds and eyes, not just to know, but to hear. And in the Hebrew sense of the word, to obey what we hear. May we indeed understand what it means in our text to obey Jesus and then to do so. May he be exalted in all that we say and do and hear and how we respond. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Be seated. The letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God, where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians That's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah. Second, 
Second, with Moses and the promised land. Third, with priests and Melchizedek. And lastly, with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this. It's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author's saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels— How remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. 
We also find in Psalm 110 that the Messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people. And so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God. So don't do that which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, This final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now, they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages, they're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. Okay, let's pray, and next week we'll start a new series. Uh, I wanted you to see that, and these guys at the Bible Project have quite a few of these. Uh, The the one on the Psalms is outstanding, and those are the only ones I've looked at, Hebrews and Psalms. But I am eager to uh, look at some of the others that they have. So let me just encourage you to uh, Google the Bible Project get connected with them, and, and, and learn about Scripture. Well, um, so hopefully this video reminds you of what we have studied so far, and it sort of prepares you for what's to come. Uh, if you're just getting here and just now uh, jumping into Hebrews, again, it can be a little bit overwhelming. I, I bet for those of you who have been here, it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, that makes sense, that makes sense. If it seems overwhelming, just hang in there. We learn in layers, and it's, it's a whole lot coming at you right at the beginning, but it'll begin to fall in place. 
uh, you will catch up. Hebrews is a difficult book, no doubt, but the author uses a number of literary features to help us make sense of a complicated subject. Take today's text, for example. We know where this section begins and where it ends because of of the literary device called an inclusio. At the very first of this section, at the very end of this section, we learn that Jesus was a high priest chosen from among men, appointed by God. God appointed Jesus as the high priest. Um, We also know this section is built on what we have read before, Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, which gives us the beautiful truth of Jesus' loving service for us as our great high priest. Now, remember that the recipients of this letter were almost entirely Jewish. There may have been a few Gentiles in there, but if they were, if there were Gentiles in there, they would have known the Old Testament Torah almost as well as the Jews Uh, Many of the Gentile converts in the early days first converted to Judaism and it's like God had prepared their hearts. They were known as righteous Gentiles. So when Paul and the other apostles would go into the synagogues and they would preach the gospel, it was easier for these Gentiles to respond than it was for the Jews because Paul was saying, Jesus is superior to the law. And they were saying, yes, and I see how this has led me to this place where I can see Jesus in the Old Testament now. It's all clear to me. It makes sense. But the Jews were like, what are you talking about? Hey, you're messing with the law. You're messing with our national identity. Just listen, you know how it is. When you pull for a team, when you like a particular author, you want to get everyone else to do the same. You want them to be on your bandwagon. You want them to be reading the same stuff. You want people to affirm your decision. And the Jews were like, hey, wait a minute. You're talking about something that is no longer Jewish. And so many of these Believers in, in, in the book of Hebrews to, to whom it was written were pr- probably were Jewish. Maybe a few Gentiles thrown in there. But for the most part, they were Jewish. And, and it was going to be difficult for them to continue as a Christian because more and more of those Jews who had first believed were walking away from the Lord. And many of them had, had sort of fashioned this um, uh, religion where... You start with the law and you add Jesus, but make sure you come back to the law. It's Jesus plus the law. So, all of these receiving the letter knew about the Old Testament law. And it was important, it would have been quite meaningful to them to hear that Jesus is now compared to the priest, to the high priest, in fact, the most important Religious leader in the land. Uh, He was appointed by God to serve as the mediator of God's blessing to the people. Now the primary responsibility for the the priest, of course, was to offer sacrifice. Not only for the sins of the people, but for his own sins. And and as our uh, video pointed out, while that was done daily, there was a special day. The Day of Atonement where everybody understood this is a big deal. He's going to take the high priest once a year is going to take this offering into the Holy of Holies. And he's going to put it as an offering. He sacrificed the animal, puts the blood on the mercy seat as an offering. And the sins of the people are temporarily covered. 
We know it was temporary, temporary because they had to do it year after year after year. There's much more that the author is going to say about this coming up, so I won't go into detailed description here. The author's point is that Jesus is our great high priest, and in contrast to the high priest in Aaron's line, Jesus had no sins of his own for which to pay. But the fact that you say that Jesus is different from the priest in Aaron's line is problematic in the mind of Jewish believers because a priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. Now, it was important for the Messiah, it was necessary, not important, it was absolutely necessary for the Messiah to come from the line of Judah, but, and from King David's line specifically, but the priest came from the line of Levi. Levi. Jesus met the qualifications of being in David's line, but how could he be both from Judah and Levi as well? Uh, The problem is briefly addressed in verses 5 to 6, which are quotations from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And it's going to be discussed in greater detail in chapter 7. So again, won't go into into too much here, but but there are a couple things about this that are very interesting. It's It's a teaser of sorts. When he's talking about Melchizedek, He's kind of like saying, okay, just I, I know what your objections are in your mind. Just put those aside for a moment and recognize that God has all of this under control. And for those of you who are really interested in this kind of stuff, mathematicians, I would guess, logicians, other really strange people, you would be interested to know that these two verses come from the two Psalms that bracket all of those Seven Psalms in chapter 1. Again, all I'm doing is pointing out the order. You're probably thinking, I'm not sure how that... And it won't matter to most of you. But to some of you, you will see this awesome God who has designed patterns that are far beyond our ability to piece together and certainly to create on our own, but to even to understand. He's beyond our comprehension. So, even though the details about Melchizedek were not given at this point, it was important for the author to answer the question in the minds of his readers about Jesus' qualifications to serve as a priest. But Jesus wasn't just any priest, as we have already seen. The high priest, when he went in once a year, God had designed the robe that he was to wear to have bells on the bottom of the robe. Now, this, it doesn't say this exactly in Scripture, but the understanding is that they would tie a rope around the bottom of the priest's foot or leg at, at, toward the foot. And if they didn't hear those bells ringing anymore, they'd tug on the rope and it's like if there was no response, they'd drag him out dead. This was how serious it was to walk into the presence of God. And to offer blood for sin. But Jesus had no sin for which to offer his blood. He knew the limitations and the challenges of the human body and mind. But he did not carry the burden of sin. So when he offered his blood... As a sacrifice for sins. 
He was the only eligible one to do so on behalf of others. I can't offer my life for you. You can't offer your life for me. We all have to pay for our own sins. It's like you and your brother getting in a fight and your parents say, Hey, I'm going to whoop you both. And you say, I'll take the whooping for both. Uh uh. Well, how about letting him take the whooping? Uh uh. You're both punished. It's kind of like personal foul on both, t- both teams in the NFL. It means nothing, you know. It means everything when you're being punished like that, though, I can tell you. Jesus, as the eligible sacrifice for our sins has done something for us that nobody else has done. In John 15, 13, Jesus said to his disciples, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's, of course, exactly what Jesus did. We're told in Hebrews 2 that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Have you ever heard someone say, you have brought shame on this family. Or I am ashamed of you. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. In John 13, 13, he said, you call me Lord and Master and that's a good thing. For that's who I am. But then, this was all on the night before he was crucified. Then just a, a, a few chapters later, but all in the context of the same night, the same evening. He says, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. My goodness what a beautiful. Look people take this way too far. And they live as though Jesus is my girlfriend. Or he's my homie or whatever. That it's, We can't be casual about it. But understand. That while we have to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. We have to. He is our friend. And he considers us his friends. Who again is your best friend? I mean, hopefully it's someone who inspires you to be a better person. Hopefully it's someone who understands what you're going through. Either because he or she has been through it. Or that person is able to project himself into your situation. And to say, I I don't understand it, but I want you to know I am entering into your sorrow at the highest possible level that I can enter. Hopefully, it's someone who will be there if everyone else walks away. You want that kind of friend, don't you? Remember when Paul in 2 Timothy is talking to his young friend and mentee, his protege, he's saying, at the first call, everyone abandoned me. Nevertheless, Jesus stood with me. Everyone walked away except for Jesus. Most of them made their way back, but Jesus never left me. Not only did Jesus face all temptation like us, But he endured temptation to the end. And he overcame it. Look, what is temptation if you give in to it? It subsides, right? Well, guilt comes in and all of that. But temptation is is rarely experienced by any of us 
at the highest level because sooner or later we give in. Maybe you don't give in to this, but you give in to that. Jesus faced it at the highest levels and did not sin. He suffered death in order to bring eternal life to us. And what the author is saying is that his victory over sin and temptation will help us in our hour of need in this life. In verse 7, we're told that Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears to the one who could deliver him from death. You ever prayed like that? Probably not publicly, but maybe privately. You know, publicly, we're typically, Lord, we ask for your blessings in these manners. And, and some of us, especially, you know, uh, it's the American way and the refined way. Jesus was Jewish and Jesus just let it all go. And he cried out with deep sorrow in his soul, begging the Lord that he deliver him from death or to find some other way to bring salvation than going to the cross and bearing the sins of the world. Even though Jesus may have many times in his life cried out with tears to the Father, we know that it happened in the Garden of Gethsemane and we're almost certainly that's what the author is referring to. He wrestled with the knowledge that he would be called to assume my sin on the cross. Now, Hebrews tells us that he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard because of his reverence. Chris uh, was talking today about being how the, 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 the Hebrew children in, in Babylon were delivered in the fire, not from the fire. Jesus was not delivered from death. If we're just saying, okay, so Jesus says, God, don't let me die. And God answered him. The answer was no. I'm not going to grant the petition that you ask in the way that you ask. But God did deliver, deliver Jesus out of death. Jesus' resurrection is being referenced here. And the author, we, we recognize that this author is brilliant. He's not dumb enough to say, uh, well, you know, Jesus Christ. And the Lord delivered him from... Uh, he understood the death. He's going to go in great detail about Jesus' death in, in the coming chapters. But he understood that God delivered him, not in the way that he wanted necessarily or the way that he requested, but he did answer his prayer He was delivered out of death, not from it. And Jesus was heard because of his reverent awe. The word reverence means, it carries the idea that Jesus was humble and submissive. Because of his humble submission to his Father's will, God answered him. That means more to you than you may know. Is there anything in your life that you just feel like you absolutely cannot face? 
Most of us have something that we dread more than anything else. Maybe, uh, especially if you're in some position of responsibility, you're afraid that you'll be accused of the wrong thing and you'll spend a lot of time in prison uh, unjustly. Or maybe you're worried about cancer or a recurrence of cancer. Perhaps you're worried about rejection by a spouse or a child. Maybe concerns for the safety and health of your family keep you awake at night. When we hear about things happening to others, it it just strikes terror in our hearts sometimes. It could be that you're worried about losing your job and the prestige that goes with your job. It's like, how can I face my neighbors? How can I face my family if I lose my job? Maybe you're quite fearful that you'll yield to temptation. And in a moment of weakness, you will throw everything good in your life away. What is it that you cannot face? Whatever you're facing, Jesus has endured the temptation and the suffering that is common to men and women. And he endured to the end without sin. Verse 8 may seem a bit strange to you. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Look, if, if you take everything literally, you're going to have trouble with this. What does it mean that he learned obedience? Now, when I learned obedience through what I suffered, it was because I was suffering the consequences of my bad decisions and my disobedience. And my father made sure that I would learn obedience. But Jesus never sinned. Not once did he ever sin. Never did he disobey his father. Even though he was greatly tempted to and greatly desired A way other than his father's will. The point of verse 8 is that obedience is practiced in real time concrete circumstances. Not in theory or with good intentions. It's the same sense in which Jesus was made perfect. He never had the slightest flaw. And yet fully committing himself to God's will. He was made perfect. He withstood every test that came to him. So he was, he was declared obedient. He was declared perfect. Look, it's like, I have no idea why football is on my mind. I, I just, you know, foot, let's say football. Preseason, teams are playing, NFL teams are playing. And the team goes 4-0. What does everybody say? Yeah, well, let's wait to the, let's wait to the, Real season, then we'll see. Regular season, that's when you'll be tested. Well, Jesus was tested to the full. And he was found fully obedient. And he was perfected or declared perfect by the Lord. And it was also part of the process in making him fully what he already was. So how does Jesus' obedience and perfection help me? He has become the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey Jesus. So that's another question. What does it mean to obey Jesus? 
The meaning uh, can only be understood in the greater context of the book of Hebrews. The Jewish believers, again, quite familiar with God's law. And some of them who were here in this sermon were thinking about walking away just like several others had done. Or they were thinking about trying to form this religion that included Jesus and the law. You know people in our world like that. Today a lot of people are like that actually. A lot of religious people. Well look Jesus is fine and all that. But don't get fanatical about Jesus. You better be a good person if you, you want to go to heaven. So I, I'm fine with conversation about God. But Jesus that's a little, it's a little extreme isn't it? It's ironic that when the author of Hebrews warns his readers about staying where they are. He's not warning them against a failure to be a good person. He's saying, actually, don't put your hope in being a good person that God will accept you then. You are a sinner and your only hope is to fall on the mercy of Jesus and stay in that place. He was warning them against the failure to to walk away from the gospel. A failure to keep believing the gospel. The good news that Jesus' death was the ultimate sacrifice paid for our sins. And when we repent of our sin, or we acknowledge that we are the kinds of sinners God says says we are, and we believe that Jesus died for us, we're saved. Holiness should result from one's trust in Jesus. And surely, if we live just any old way that we want to, and there is sin in our lives, and that ought to be cause for concern. But the emphasis in Hebrews is to keep your trust fully in Jesus, not yourself. If you're disconnected with Jesus, your behavior is going to take care of itself. If you're united with Him by faith, you will endure to the end, even in the face of great loss that comes as a result of your faith. It's not that you'll never fail or never doubt. My goodness, Peter, over and over again, even after Pentecost, he was tempted to side with the Judaizers who were saying, well, yeah, Jesus is good, but uh, law, you know, let's keep it. And Paul rebuked him to his face. That was well after The gospel had come to the Jewish nation and to the Samaritans through Peter. So it's not that you'll never fail or you'll never doubt. But your face will stay on Jesus. Directed toward him. Gazing upon him. That's a good thing because it will be his life in you that causes you to obey in the face of great trials and even persecution. It will be Jesus' commitment to prayer that drives you to the Father. And over time, his faithfulness will result in your faithfulness. His obedience will become your obedience. His perfection, His obedience, His perfection, and His perfect sacrifice have secured for you an eternal salvation. How all of that works to the best of our understanding is going to be fleshed out some in home groups this week. Well, verse 10 closes this section by reminding us that Jesus was designated a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
Psalm 110, which if you recall was the primary text. If you have to go to one Old Testament text that's the basis for the book of Hebrews, it's Psalm 110. And he says this referring to God's chosen one in verse 4 of Psalm 110. You are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's quoted in verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. But in verse 10, the author of Hebrews, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, paraphrases Psalm 110, verse 4, by adding high priest. He's not only a priest after the order of Melchizedek, as we are told in Psalm 110, verse 4, but he is a high priest appointed by God. Again, the full significance of the truth is going to be made in chapter be, be made known in chapter 7. But just think now with this teaser about Melchizedek and sort of along the lines of what we talked about a while ago, about what a God of order. Our God is. It's not like God instituted the law and that didn't work out, so he sent Jesus as plan B. Melchizedek was in place long before the law, some 400 years before the law. Jesus was God's plan all along. And the Garden of Gethsemane and Calvary was God's plan. All along. And think about what that means to us. Everything in your life may seem chaotic right now. I'm sure it seemed chaotic to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet there is purpose and design. For whatever is before you. Odds are good that there is at least one person here who wonders if you wonder if you're going to make it. Maybe more than just a handful of you are thinking that the trials are so great that you're that you're close to despair, whether they happen overnight or or whether it came gradually upon you. It's just I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep going. Jesus, in his role of high priest, stands ready to help you. The priest in the line of Aaron had sympathy for the people because they had their own sins and they needed to take that blood in so that their sins would be covered as well. They were as weak and sinful as the people that they they served. But Jesus helps us because he was tempted to the extreme great extremes greater than we will ever face yet without sin I want to close our time this morning reading Hebrews 4:14 4, to 16 the text that comes just before ours since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession that phrase is Prominent in Hebrews. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray.
So what is your greatest fear at this moment? Jesus, our great high priest, understands. He will comfort you and give you courage. Maybe you have moved beyond fear to reality. Maybe you would say with Job, that which I greatly feared has come upon me. What trial is before you that seems insurmountable? Jesus endured suffering like no other. And he endured to the end. He will help you. God is not calling you to make sense of your circumstances. He's calling you to trust him just like Jesus did. What temptation is so great in your heart and mind that you feel it will overwhelm you? Whether it be anything from lust to self-pity. Jesus faced temptation in the extreme, yet he did not yield. His obedience will help you. What is the greatest disappointment of your life? Who has rejected you, betrayed you, or dismissed you? Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He understands and he will walk with you in your pain and confusion. Reminding you to humbly submit to the Father's good plan. Our Father is sovereign and His plan is good. The Holy Spirit will comfort you and remind you of Jesus' words and Jesus' sorrow. And in a very real sense... Jesus will walk with you in your temptation and your pain. Lord, we are weak and needy and sinful. And Jesus is our steadfast hope. And yet, uh, we turn every way possible, but we thank you in your plan, Father. And Holy Spirit, in your guidance, you keep drawing us back to Jesus. We pray that you would do for us what we're incapable of doing for ourselves. And may we live gospel-saturated lives, aware of our sin, of our need, and aware of your great provision. We believe, help our unbelief. Jesus' name. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts in every good work and establish your hearts in every good work and word. May the peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, our great high priest, go with each one of us as we leave this place. And all of God's people said, 